The following is a special sponsored edition of the Big Four Bio Podcast. Daniel Levine, and this is the Big Four Bio Podcast. As economic pressures weigh on the ability of life sciences companies to raise capital, there is pressure on them to do more with less. With investors growing more risk-averse, companies are taking steps to cut expenses without jeopardizing the pace at which they can advance their work to the next financeable milestone. We spoke to Greg Beloff, co-founder and managing director of Danforth Advisors, about the current financial environment for biotech companies, how they can extend their cash runways, and what steps they can take to better position themselves to fund their growth. Greg, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Really appreciate the consideration. We're going to discuss Danforth Advisors, the current financial environment for biotech companies and how they can best navigate through this period. We've had years of robust financing activity, and we saw a downturn in investor appetites for biotech more recently. Perhaps we can start with some perspective. Where are we in terms of the availability of capital for biotechs today? I think in general, we're in a very difficult place. Uh, There is not so much a lack of availability, but a lack of a willingness to deploy capital. And that's being driven by multiple factors. And many, many of those are beyond the science. So sort of macroeconomic factors about the market and then how that impacts various portfolio managers and, uh, and, and various funds. Even in good markets, it, it can be challenging for seed and early stage companies to get financing Often the overall financing can be skewed by a few big deals. How challenging is it for these companies to raise the money they need? Well, it's it's always challenging in the sense that um, there needs to be justifiable science, or at least we hope there needs to be justifiable science. What does happen is there tends to be over-exuberance. And we've seen that in areas around gene therapy and immuno-oncology and several other hot spaces and sectors where uh, funds are clamoring to get into at least the space, uh, but perhaps not fully vetting the both the integrity of the science, but as well the maturity of the science. And so I think we had a little bit of an overfunding, uh, and we're going to have to do a little correcting on that. We've seen a, a lot of companies at all stages announce restructurings. Programs have been tabled and headcounts have been reduced. Some of this is driven by clinical failures, but to a large extent, a lot of companies are talking about taking steps to extend their cash runway. As someone who guides companies on doing this, what are the best ways they can extend their cash? So science drives the value, but it also consumes the capital. And whether that's in a uh, research stage or a clinical development stage, 
and so companies, I think, rather than extend the cash runway, the way I would phrase it is they need to optimize where they're spending their dollars. In other words, what opportunity cost is created by allocating monies to fixed costs or fixed fees that can otherwise be outsourced, or perhaps where a rationalization of a pipeline, uh, uh, a reduction of programs uh, is otherwise warranted. Because again, it comes back to what is going to drive the most value, what is going to create the most number of milestones uh, to allow me to be in a position to finance the company further. Uh, How broadly should companies think about both outsourcing and contracting as ways to control fixed expenses? Certainly, uh, and I admit it's a little bit of a biased answer, but we think that there's an absolute premium placed on that decision, that there is truly a a dollar cost opportunity uh, created by every dollar spent on a fixed cost, especially in support of GNA, rather than allocate that money to the science. So examples of costs that are fixed would include salaries, benefits uh, to folks that it may be premature to hire, uh, finance, HR, uh, other business operation services. Uh, And I'd be remiss if I didn't add uh, real estate to that. I think that uh, companies are saddled by very expensive real estate uh, in, in various markets, and there are outsourcing options in the form of biolabs and Uh, other incubators that offer companies alternative solutions whereby they can avail themselves of research space, but at the same time, not burden themselves with long-term fixed cost, high rent. Are there trade-offs they should consider in weighing the options? Well, there are, there are always trade-offs. And and again, where I would go uh, in a, in a very elemental way is to say uh, science rules the day. And how do we demonstrate that a scientific hypothesis is de-risked? And that's really the underpinning of the difficulty in the financing market right now is risk and the lack of comfort that institutional investors have uh, in the maturity of both platforms and assets. And so if I can do something to de-risk my scientific hypothesis, again, whether that's a platform or an asset, I should, a priori, devote every dollar that I have to doing that. And if I can do so in a way that doesn't compromise the integrity of the business support, but rather variableizes it and outsources it, uh, I believe very strongly in that uh, that invested capital should go to the science and, and not necessarily the fixed supportive cost. One of the main ways companies do this is through engaging with a contract research organization, this can help companies avoid a lot of fixed overhead. But as the environment changes, how much room is there for companies to negotiate with these service providers? Can they renegotiate existing contracts? Well, I think I think first and foremost, start with the the premise of the contract and, and that this is Uh, a research organization that is a true service provider. And I think that what we've seen is a migration from the pure conduct of research, whether that's preclinical or clinical, to more advisory roles and more opaque statements of work that lead to change orders, which leads to 
uh, burgeoning and increasing budgets. I think that when companies approach any third party, uh, whether that's a, a contract research organization or a contract development manufacturing organization, uh, people should be very uh, uh, both rigid and bespoke in terms of the way that they consult for the services that they're procuring. Examples would include rather than have uh, uh, overhead costs uh, be allocated to a company, uh, look to make define payments based on achieved milestones, something definitive, something discrete, something that creates value. So, for example, a clinical research organization will want to be paid for in, uh, at least uh, signing up multiple potential participants in a clinical trial, whether they fail out or not. Those create pass-through costs, they create overhead costs, um, and it doesn't lead or incentivize the CRO to be efficient. If instead you milestone the contract whereby uh, the, the CRO only gets paid and credit for uh, a certain number of enrolled patients, that's a very different cadence to the performance of the contract. As companies go out to raise their first or next round of financing, how has the bar moved in the current environment? What's it going to take to secure funding? I think it comes back to the risk perspective. Uh, and, and again, we'll, we'll, we could get into the platform and the asset debate and, and whether there are, there are more and broader platforms uh, that should be funded to create multiple asset opportunities or whether it's a single asset that companies should be pursuing. But nonetheless, I think that it's all about risk. And it's, and it's not just the uh, immediate risk, but is what is the risk to the science and how is that reduced and how quickly and how linearly? So for companies that went public at a very early stage on speculative platform science, there are fewer opportunities to create meaningful milestones that evidence de-risking of that platform. In contrast, if you have a company that has been very deliberate and thoughtful about their approach to uh, uh, testing a clinical asset, and through their IND enabling studies, through their phase one studies, are, are able to demonstrate a continual de-risking of the asset or the clinical candidate, those companies are in a better position to obtain financing than those companies who really don't have the catalysts to drive value or de-risk the science, thereby enabling investment. So as, as companies think about going out and talking to a, a venture capitalist, how should they emphasize that? Again, I think it comes back to, to what are the ways that you can evidence uh, de-risking. And, and that's going to differ depending on if you're a gene therapy platform company or a single asset, small molecule company. But what is it that shows, and we can take, for example, the asset company, what is it that's going to show that, uh, that what you have as an asset is continually de-risked? And we have to think about it from both a biology and a chemistry standpoint. So what is the target? How do we have uh, or show evidence of target engagement, how translational is that from animal to human? Uh, on the chemistry end, what is the therapeutic index? What do we see in terms of potential therapeutic liabilities? How do we de-risk that? 
in a way, what we're be, what we're trying to do is uh, where a proof of concept or a proof of mechanism might have been predefined in terms of stage of clinical development. We're trying to do away with that, and we're trying to show that we have mechanistic and or conceptual proof at an earlier stage than, say, phase two or phase three. We've seen a, a big sell-off in the public markets in biotech stocks. Has that translated into falling valuations on the private side? Is there greater reliance on milestone-based tranches for investors? Absolutely. It has, uh, it has uh, uh, an imputed effect on private valuations. Uh, you know, uh, I think that the companies right now are focused less on valuation. And in many ways, it's, it's somewhat of a Pyrrhic victory. Uh, companies need cash and they need capital. And if the choice is a high cost of capital or no capital at all, uh, in this market, it's obviously always favorable to get the cash in and of itself. So we're seeing depressed valuations. We're seeing flat rounds. We're often seeing inside lead rounds or at least insider produced term sheets that will uh, uh, drive participation by a broader syndicate. So a lot of different mechanisms are being used to, to, to uh, accelerate the pace of financing or increase the likelihood of financing. Uh, but I would encourage folks not to get too caught up in what the specific valuation is, but rather how are companies being financed and to and through what milestones will you be financed? We saw a, a swell of companies going public in, in recent years through IPOs and through SPACs. As the market turned down, there's been a burgeoning of the ranks of small cap and micro cap biotechs. What's the ability of these companies to raise capital? Well, it's, it's obviously more difficult, and I think there are a couple of reasons why. I think the first one, and in, this is in no particular order, but the first one is, is that we had uh, quite a bit of sector rotation. So we're in the, uh, the hot markets. Uh, we had a lot of generalists participating in uh, public offerings and even venturing into the crossover space. Uh, those funds are have a greater exposure to macroeconomic things like variable interest rates and, and market volatility. And they're less, uh, they're less skilled or, or schooled in the nuances of life science investing. So they rotate into more secure things such as fixed income or, or yield-based equities. And so there are just empirically fewer uh, funds, those funds that are specifically dedicated to life sciences, uh, to to invest. So that's a that's a big factor. I would say the second big factor that limits the ability of these companies to finance is that many of the companies, many of the investment firms uh, or institutional investors who participated both in the crossover. And if you go back and look at the inside coverage on the IPO, which was anywhere between, let's say, 35 to 75%, depending on the time of the market, um, many of these institutional investors are still holding 
significantly underwater position. So uh, a company that went public at 17, which is now trading at two or three dollars a share, it's very hard for institutional investors to liquidate residual positions, freeing up capital to redeploy or reallocate to new investments. And so we have a constriction of capital in the market as well. Biotechs have long turned to partnering deals as an alternative to raising private rounds or relying on capital markets. Where's the power at the negotiating table today? It's a it's a really interesting question. I think that at at all times, uh, you know, we tend to oscillate in increments of 180 degrees only, and uh, I, I think that's a, a, a tough way for the industry to operate. Um, fiscal discipline and optionality should be the same regardless of capital market conditions. By that, I mean to say that business development or licensing or partnership was always an option, and it always should be an option, notwithstanding the the health of the capital markets. But certainly, as you point out, with uh, the relative ill health of the capital markets, this has become a preferred alternative or perhaps a more favored alternative to uh, a straight up equity financing. But in order to partner effectively, it takes uh, a willing seller and a willing buyer. And what we're seeing is, is that uh, pharma companies that are traditionally active in the licensing space have become very selective. Uh Pfizer, for example, has announced that they will no longer be in rare disease. That takes a significant player out of the partnering realm for companies that are working in the rare disease space. Novartis announced a restructuring today. That no, no doubt will have effects on uh, the partnership activity. So while it's always an alternative, and perhaps now it seems like a more viable alternative, um, it's one that... Uh, is still going to be very difficult to manage. What I would say is that the people who are going to see uh, a, a successful outcome are those that have de-risk clinical data and perhaps to add to that, uh, some uh, opinion of FDA, whether that's evidenced in a uh, end of phase one, end of phase two meeting or type C meeting, but some sort of validation of the clinical and regulatory path that the company is advocating. Um, all of that will, again, go to de-risking the asset they're looking to license. These agreements often involve a, a level of risk sharing. How should companies think about upfront payments versus their long-term upside? Well, I think it depends on what the mission of the company is. If, if a company is a single-asset company and they're looking to uh, to return capital immediately and not prosecute anything uh, off a platform or, or perhaps deeper in their pipeline, then optimizing the upfront payment so that you get a return to your shareholders that's at the uh, at, at the highest empiric rate of return is important. Um, if you're thinking about continuing to develop assets or you want uh, continued upside. Uh, in terms of, of sharing and product revenue or, uh, or similar things, then risk sharing is okay. And what you would look for would be offset and cost. So can you get uh, a third party to sponsor clinical trials, perhaps even broader uh, and more exploratory clinical trials than you would otherwise able, be able to explore on your own? Companies still manage to go public today. I, I think there are a number of companies that went public earlier than they should have, but 
when should a company think of going public and what can they do today to position themselves for that? So I, I think there's the certainly the practical positioning uh, of making sure that your proverbial house is in order and you have all of the right policy procedure and control and the sophistication to be a public company. Far more important, though, is that you have a clear trajectory of uh, meaningful milestones that de-risk the technology. So for those companies that you mentioned that go public, quote unquote, too early, what happens is, is that they're in a public environment where people are looking for them to evidence the value of their science or de-risk it. And because they don't have anything that has been planned uh, or well synchronized or syncopated in order to show that, they don't have the possibility of increasing their market valuation or financing further. So if I'm a company that's thinking about going public, what I want to make sure is to do is to, in a very deliberate way, set out uh, what my cost spend will be against what my milestones achieved in that spend window will be, making sure that I have multiple catalysts as a public company to not only de-risk my science, but to increase the, the enterprise value of, of my company. This is an industry that's always managed to find new ways to finance itself in down markets. Are you seeing any less conventional financial mechanisms being employed today? Well, you know, again, I go back to the, the, the missive that people should be always thinking about optionality regardless of the health of the capital markets. But given that we are in uh, a state or a, a position where the equity capital markets may not be available, we talked a little bit about partnerships. Uh, there are venture debt opportunities, and those come in traditional venture debt. Uh, we're actually seeing, I, I was just on the phone with a consultant about a, uh, believe it or not, a pick preferred loan, something that we used to see back in the 90s and 80s and leverage buyouts, but now that's come to biotech. Uh, there's been a reemphasis on grants and foundations. Uh, these should always be in your armamentarium. Uh, don't wait until a time like now when the equity capital markets aren't available to evaluate them as a viable source of capital. But given where we are, it's, it's prudent to, to take a look at, at, at these as alternatives. As you advise companies today, where are their biggest pain points? What are their concerns and what's keeping executives up at night? Well, I, I think... Cash is is king and, and companies don't go anywhere without cash. And so what is the runway uh, when you take that in context of how do I prosecute effectively? And as I envision the science that uh, is the very corpus of the company, uh, you know, how can I do that uh, with the cash that I have on hand? And, and will, will I be able to finance this in the future? That's what's keeping every CEO up at night. And as companies begin this new year and look toward their next milestones, what advice would you give them? Again, I go back to uh, can you create a, a picture of de-risking? Can you create a linear path towards mechanistic or conceptual proof that evidences for investors within a certain financing window that you have meaningfully de-risked your technology or your asset to a point where it is financeable in the future. For people who'd like to learn more about Danforth Advisors, where can they go? Well, I welcome them to go to our website. 
that is a certainly a great place to start to learn about us. Uh, we are uh, an outsourced provider of all business solutions for life sciences companies. So we provide C-level advisory, finance and accounting, human resources, clinical business operations, uh, IR, PR, uh, as well as enterprise risk management. So it's really a full suite of uh, business support services in a one-stop shop model. Uh, welcome any inquiries directly, and and people should feel free to reach out. Greg Biloff, co-founder and managing director of Danforth Advisors. Greg, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me, and good luck, everybody. Thanks for listening. The Big Four Bio podcast is brought to you by Big Four Bio, a leading aggregator service of four of the top life sciences centers in the world. Boston, San Diego, Philadelphia, the San Francisco Bay Area. To subscribe for free to Big Four's daily newsletters, go to bigfourbio.com. This podcast is produced by the Levine Media Group for Big Four Bio. Our theme music is provided for the podcast by the Jonah Levine Collective and appears on the album Attention Deficit on Alpha Pop Records. Thanks for listening. The Big Four Bio podcast is brought to you by Big Four Bio, a leading aggregator service of four of the top life sciences centers in the world, Boston, San Diego, Philadelphia, the San Francisco Bay Area. To subscribe for free to Big Four's daily newsletters, go to bigfourbio.com. This podcast is produced by the Levine Media Group for Big Four Bio. Our theme music is provided for the podcast by the Jonah Levine Collective and appears on the album Attention Deficit on Alpha Pup Records.